It's Rob Alford, the team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. His weekly Monday appearance is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Very recently, very recently, uh, Bronson Arroyo has signed either a two-year contract for $23.5 million or a three-year contract for $30 million for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Very much the same time as that, very close to that deal. Paul Mahomes, a pitcher who's posted uh, almost identical numbers to Arroyo or very similar numbers, one says he signed a one-year, $1.5 million contract with the Dodgers. Yes, with a, a number of incentives attached to it, but a base contract of one one year, one and a half million dollars. Why? Uh, why, if if they've recorded similar numbers, would they re- receive such different contracts? Is a question that I pose to Dave Cameron, in which, like uh, any of history's great fictional sleuths, be it Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot, uh, Dave Cameron solves that riddle, solves that puzzle uh, for my benefit immediately, uh, but also for the benefit of the readership. Does he address other topics related to baseball? Yes, he does. Do I remember them precisely now sitting in my dumb apartment? No, I don't. But it was uh, captivating the whole time that we were speaking. That's all I will remember. And listen, what else I know is that the this edition of Fangraphs is beginning. It's Fangraphs Audio. Again, it features managing editor, knower of all things, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. No, that's fine. Uh, yeah, that's fine. I was just finishing up a post, so it's no big deal. Cool. Uh, look at this guy. Look at Davy Cameron. Uh, well, maybe don't do that. No, don't look at him. Yeah. Well, listen, listen. Listen. Maybe. Listen to Dave Cameron. Right. Would you say with you that the voice matches the uh, physical appearance? Not at all. No. No. I think if my voice matched a physical appearance, I would be a like bullfrog. <laughs> Yeah. Well, are you are you going by because you know uh, are you going by the way your voice sounds when you listen to it uh, like recorded or when you how it sounds in your head? Both. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I have no illusions about the quality of my voice. I am no Vince Scully. Mhm. Mhm. You know, I got to a recent edition of Fangraphs Audio. I got to talk about Vince Scully. Did you? Yeah. With Joe. Is that with the John Weissman? Yeah. Oh, nice. John Weissman is a uh, uh, John Weissman. No. Uh, knows Vince Scully. Uh, more importantly, Vince Scully knows him. That's uh pretty great. Yeah. I like Vince a lot. He's a good guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, he is. He's uh he uh, he's he's a fun guy. He's a fun. Yeah. He's not a mushroom. He's a no. fun. He's a fun guy though. Right. Yeah. Comedy, comedy, yeah. comedy, uh-huh. comedy. Um, Cameron, Cameron, let me ask you a question, which is um, <clears throat> why, why? And this is a basic question, but why? Is Bronson Arroyo making so much more guaranteed money than Paul, uh, Paul Mahomes? Uh, so I think there's two simple, oversimplified answers to this. One, uh, durability. He's pitched uh, 200 innings nine years in a row or something like that. I think one year he may have gotten like 199 and a third or something. But he's uh, he's never hurt. He's never on the disabled list. Uh, a very consistent innings eater, uh, which teams put a lot of value in. And two, Kevin Towers doesn't know what he's doing. Okay. Now, 
Kevin Towers must know what he's doing some of the time, though. So, some of the time. Kevin Towers is not like a raving lunatic, but uh, I think in the last couple of years, Arizona's moves have been, uh, on the whole, pretty questionable as they've attempted to make a certain type of team rather than making a good one. Uh, and I think this kind of fits in with the, uh, we're going to get this player because we like who he is and uh, we like these specific things about him that are more about consistency or uh, durability or, you know, things that aren't performance. And I think for whatever reason, the Diamondbacks have decided to uh, kind of elevate non-performance personality traits. Um, and I think in, Ar- in Arroyo, we see another case of them paying $12 million a year for a pretty mediocre pitcher when, uh, you know, you mediocre pitchers could have been had for two or three million a year. Uh, and I think, you know, why the Diamondbacks decided to do this, uh, you could ask that a lot, a lot of their moves over the last year or two. Now, is this just something that, uh, Kevin Tower's legacy with the Padres was that, um, I mean, the, one of the main points was that he was really good at finding, um, you know, pitchers who were relatively anonymous and turning them into bullpen superstars. Even, right. I, I think even above and beyond, the effects of Petco. Yes. Did he have this quality though to him where he, it seemed as though he might be acquiring guys based off of certain, um, like personality traits? So not to the extent that the Diamondbacks have kind of made it their motto over the last couple of years. The Diamondbacks have been very kind of outspoken about playing the game the right way and kind of, um, making sure that the the players that they have are guys that they like, uh, and they're, they shipped out guys that they didn't like or the guys they felt didn't fit their culture. I don't, the Padres were not quite as outspoken as an organization as uh, the Diamondbacks are now about kind of enforcing their own code of ethics. Uh, but I do think, you know, Towers was not super successful in San Diego, to be honest. Like, you know, we do remember that he built a lot of bullpens on the cheap, but overall he lost more than he won. Uh, you know, the Padres had a couple decent runs under him, but he wasn't, you know, a fantastic general manager in Arizona. I don't think that, to be honest, that Towers has a fantastic track record uh, where we can say, oh, man, what happened where he went from making a whole bunch of great moves to a bunch of bad moves? He's got a pretty long career of making a lot of mediocre moves. Right, but but I guess he's been employed for a while. He has been employed for a very long time, uh, which, you know, I think part of that goes to his uh, charm and uh, willingness to be outspoken and kind of um, personality of his, of his own. I mean, he's a uh, certainly an affable human being who gets along with a lot of folks. Um, I think, you know, probably uh, my guess is the Arizona job will be his last. His his last as a GM, you think? Yeah, correct. I don't think he's he's going to get banished from baseball, but I think eventually the Diamondbacks probably this year aren't going to win. Uh, and even though he just got a contract extension, I think eventually he's going to have to win in order to justify his continued employment. And and my guess is this is probably the last time that uh, someone hires Kevin Towers to be their GM. Well, uh, was it uh, was it Kevin Towers who signed Jason Kubel? It was. Because that that turned out to be that turned out not to be a great move, I guess. Correct. Yeah, because uh, um, I think Kubel was worth uh, after a not after a not miserable um, uh, 2012. He was uh, he was pretty bad last year. I think he was below replacement level. Yes. Yeah. Right. Despite yeah. the fact that uh, actually, even just inspecting it now, he actually had it was not batting average. It wasn't BABIP at all. He had no. a, he actually he had a 311 BABIP. It was uh, a lot of his game collapsed. His contact rates yeah. were miserable. 
Yeah, he, he's kind of that fringe player that is always kind of just slightly uh, above replacement level, and if anything collapsed, it, he was going to lose all his value, and that's basically what happened. Yeah, yeah, that's well, that's surprising. So, uh, so they signed Bronson Road. Now, uh, as Jeff Sullivan writes, uh, what, what I think it was this morning, yep. uh, Monday morning, there is there is a, a Arroyo might uh, be part of a small group of pitchers, uh, a group uh, to which uh, you know Matt Cain has belonged. Although I don't know, I don't think he belongs there anymore. Uh, a group to which um, Jared Weaver. Yeah, right, Jared Weaver. Although maybe he, uh, I don't know if he did this last season. But in, in any case, it's pitchers who, at least um, over this, uh, over consecutive seasons, are able to outperform their uh, their indicators. Right, you know their right. defense independent numbers. Right. Um, can, can you just give us a refresher before we get this refresher on to what what we do and don't know about the skills that might contribute to that? Yeah, so I think we have a general idea of, of how a pitcher can outperform his uh, his FIP and, and post uh, ERAs or, or runs allowed lower than run estimators would expect. Uh, so the general points are that you give up a lot of fly balls. Fly balls tend to go for uh, hits uh, less often than ground balls. So if you're an extreme fly ball pitcher, your batting average on ball in play is going to be lower uh, than if you're an extreme ground ball pitcher in general. Not true in every case, but for the most part, you're likely to run a lower um, Babbitt than you are if you're, you're a ground ball pitcher. Uh, also, if you uh, are a left-handed pitcher and you can uh, have a pretty good pickoff move, you can control a running game, uh, you can stop guys from running on you. This is kind of a Johnny Cueto skill set, even though he's not a lefty. No one ever runs on him, so he posts really good strand rates. Um, and then if you get a lot of infield flies, this is kind of like what Barry Zito did for a long time. If you get a ton of pop-ups, Jared Weaver does this too. Uh, infield flies are almost as good as strikeouts, or you know, basically as good as strikeouts. Uh, they're guaranteed outs. They don't advance runners. Uh, if you can get a ton of infield flies, uh, then your batting average and balls in play is going to be lower as well, and, and run estimators will underestimate you. So Arroyo's been a guy who is... Uh, gotten some infield flies. Uh, he's certainly a fly ball guy who gives a lot of home runs, but some of that is uh, offset by the, the lack of hits and, and the number of infield flies he gets. So he's posted lower than average uh, batting average on balls in play, uh, and so he's been able to outproduce what his, his fit is expected. Uh, the problem is that, as Matt Cain showed, and this is not always the most predictive thing in the world, and if it goes away, you can have a guy who you think is really good, and then all of a sudden he's not that good anymore. Right, yeah. Well, and actually, it, se- it sort of seemed to happen to all of the di- the Giants pitchers in one season or something. I, I know, well, because I know Ryan Vogelsong last year as well. Um, after two consecutive seasons, in which he'd uh, out considerably outperformed uh, his peripherals, he, um, I guess, underperformed them uh, by by a pretty significant margin this last year. And I think that his even his FIP based WAR was still uh, below zero. Yeah, I, I think this is a very risky skill, skill set to bet on, honestly. It's like you can you can identify pitchers who over some period of time are the outlier in terms of uh, their FIP and their runs allowed matching up, and you can do that with basically any kind of group where you have some kind of normal distribution. There's always going to be tails. There's going to be people who underperform and overperform based on any kind of model, and in a, you know, reasonably small sample of, you know, even a year or two or three years, you're going to have guys who are fairly extreme on these tails, and, you know, it looks like for them the model doesn't work at all. Once you get it out to five, six, eight, ten years, things get pulled back towards the middle, and there aren't these extreme outliers anymore. So even if you say, okay, over the last three or four years or whatever, Bronson Arroyo has a history of slightly outperforming his FIP, that does not mean he's going to continue to do it at that same rate going forward. He might 
outperform his FIP a little bit for the next couple of years, but he's also getting worse. He's 37. Uh, he's going to be 37 this coming year. Uh, and I think whatever skill he has that allows him to outperform is probably going to degrade uh, and regress back to the mean. And so I'm not sure the Diamondbacks can really expect that Arroyo is going to continue to be a, you know, two-win pitcher by runs allowed. And if he's only a, you know, one or half-win pitcher by FIP, this is certainly not a good use of $12 million. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Towers is on record this offseason, I believe multiple times, has suggested that he was looking for a real number one guy. Yeah. Right? And that could only be a certain group of people. Obviously, Tanaka is one of them. Um, and, you know, you could have uh, – then you had that sort of uh, layer of three guys, uh, Jimenez, Ubaldo Jimenez, uh, Irvin Santana, and um, say the third one, Matt Garza. Matt Garza. Right, who could have been – who could have been – and he didn't get any of them. Uh, I'm curious. I mean, do you – Obviously, as a, as a GM, part of your responsibility is communicating to you know with the media, with the public, um, and and saying certain things that uh, to give them an impression uh, that you're trying to do things, moving in the right direction. Um, I, I'm curious to what degree do you believe? Hey, Cal. <laughs> My wife is making beans. Oh, nice. Can you can you hear her clattering in the background? A little bit, but yeah. it wasn't like the end of the world. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, your dog makes much more noise. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so no, but the, the point is, um, do you think he meant it? And if he did mean it, then he, he would have had to know because he's uh, understands I, to some degree the market. He would, would have had to know how much he would he would have to pay for that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question. Kevin Towers has always been the most outspoken GM in baseball. Uh, you know, he's, he's never been one to really, uh, keep secrets. He's just kind of tells people what's on his mind or what he's doing. Uh, I think, you know, there's no question he was trying to get uh, a frontline starter this winter. He was trying to get David Price, uh, trying to get Jeff Samarzja. He even made a joke at the winter meetings at the, at the press conference, uh, where they announced the Adam Eaton, Matt Davidson, uh, Mark Trumbo three-way trade that he, uh, had talked to uh, Rick Hahn about trying to get Chris Sale and uh, w- would have continued to have negotiations above and beyond the trade they did make if Chris Sale's name would have been uh, invoked on Chicago's end and uh, said that Hahn just wasn't willing to talk about him. So, you know, he's clearly making uh, efforts to make a trade for good young pitching that could make him control for a while. Uh, I think all three of these pitchers are, are quality front front of the rotation guys. Uh, the Diamondbacks probably would have been looking to sign any of them to extension, or in sales case would have kept him on the really friendly extension he just signed last year. Um, so I think that they were looking for kind of a not just a one-year stopgap or a short-term uh, frontline guy, but they were looking for a guy who would be their best pitcher for quite a while. Uh, and I think for whatever reason, Towers uh, decided to make that his primary goal this offseason, and then you know the prices for those guys were just too high. He wasn't able to complete that kind of trade. So Bronson Arroyo was the fallback plan, and I don't think that anyone's going to be deluded into thinking that Bronson Arroyo is what they wanted uh, from the outset of the offseason, but this is... The definition of settling is you wanted one thing, you couldn't get it, so you go get something else. Uh, and in this case, they probably paid too high of a price to get something rather than just saying, okay, fine, we're going to go into camp with Randall Delgado until Archie Bradley's ready, and then we'll you know, make another run at someone at the trade deadline. Right. Now, uh, Matt Garza signed uh, with the uh, Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, what, what were the terms of that, of that particular F- deal? $50 million over four years. $50 million over four years. Okay. Yep. Um, so that's uh, that's like twelve and a half per year. Yep. Um, 
<clears throat> Arroyo has been signed now, uh, now for uh, it's what two two. Well, it, it, he has an option in there, but it's like um, it would either be two twenty-three five or three thirty. Correct. It's, it's a team option, so it's not his. Right. But okay. it, it's going to be one of those two. Right. Right. So one of those two, and so that's uh, on an annual value. That's not inc- that's not much different than Garza, but uh, less of an overall investment. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's definitely uh, you know half the term in terms of commitment, and I think with Arroyo instead of Garza, you get. Innings. I mean, Garza's uh, price was certainly driven down because of concerns about his health, and uh, you know he's had elbow issues, and uh, well, you know, through 150 innings last year. So um, I think if if you're the Diamondbacks, you're looking at it and saying, hey, look, I can have half of the commitment, uh, you know, 24 million instead of 50 million, and I get a guy without the health question marks who's going to be more likely to give me innings. Uh, I can see how you would justify. Uh, that kind of price, and you're not just necessarily looking at the annual average value. You're saying Arroyo costs half of what Garza costs, uh, and I don't think Garza is twice as good. Now you can make a pretty good argument that maybe Garza is twice as good, or are better than twice as good as Bronson Arroyo, depending on how you feel about his ability to keep outperforming his FIP. But I think that's the argument that I'm uh, would make is they weren't looking at this on an annual average value scale. They were looking at this on a total contract scale, and uh, I think they're probably looking at it as this contract is basically the same as the one Tim Hudson got from the Giants who's also 37. This is kind of the, you know, Scott Casimir got 222. Like, this, this is kind of the, the short-term pitcher deal that was kind of in vogue this offseason, and he got a market value deal relative to those guys rather than putting him up in the Garza, Jimenez, Santana class. Right, okay. Now, now, I started off by asking you the difference between Brunson Arroyo and Paul Mahom. Uh, uh, Paul Mahom, I believe, signed, what, 1.5? One, 1. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's one and a half million guaranteed and then up to six million incentives. But I think the, the interesting thing here, and really maybe the thing that describes just how soft Paul Mahomes' market was, he's not even, he's not penciled into their rotation. He took one and a half million guaranteed with a pretty good chance he's going to start the year in the bullpen. Uh, so, you know, maybe Paul Mahomes really wanted to play for the Dodgers, uh, yeah, that's possible, I guess. Um, but I think, you know, what this shows us is there was not a team out there willing to offer Paul Mahomes a guaranteed rotation spot, or at least even being penciled into a rotation spot coming into spring training. Everyone who evaluated him looked to him as an extra, as just depth guy who might fit in the bullpen uh, and could ten- potentially be, you know, a relief option, maybe a swing starter. Um, but there was not uh, a job waiting for Paul Mahomes, or I think he probably would have taken it. Yeah, well, it's strange, right? Uh, a little bit, I think, because uh, Mahomes' numbers, uh, I mean, he doesn't, uh, you know, you've mentioned innings, and he he has not necessarily exhibited the same sort of uh, durability as Brunson Arroyo, uh, but uh, he's probably matched him, you know, over the last, I don't know, however long they've been both been pitching, last seven years or something, yeah. uh, in terms of wins, uh, which I you know, say, you know, pitching, uh, uh, you know, wins above replacement. Yeah, I think so. Mahomes, there. My only conclusion here is that there's a medical issue that we don't know about because from the outside, this field doesn't make any sense at all, and the the uh, lack of interest in Mahomes doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, this is the guy who spent uh, 15 days on the DL last year, or maybe a month on the DL. But they did an MRI in September; it showed nothing. Uh, there's no reason to believe he's currently injured. He's, you know, has a decent history of being a you know, back end innings leader, uh, not that different than Arroyo or Jason Vargas, or you know, guys who got a lot larger deals. Uh, but for Mahomes, uh, I think the the only way to rationalize the fact that there was no interest in even giving him a rotation job for a couple million dollars, when you know Jason Hamill gets six million dollars, uh, you know I think 
the medicals have to be not great. And, uh, you know, from, from our outside perspective, we don't, we can't know that. So I think when the entire league kind of rejects Paul Mahomes, uh, and math, it's probably more likely that there's a medical red flag than that all 30 teams lost their minds. Right. Yes. That would be, yeah, because we can, I mean, we can't assume again, as you mentioned, unless Paul Mahomes wanted expressly to play for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah. And he was willing to go there uh, at any cost or at any you know at any at any uh, at any salary. Yeah. Um unless that's the case then um no one was willing to pay him more than a million five guaranteed. Yeah, I mean I think so the question is, you know, how they look at the contract and so you know, you obviously have the guaranteed portion, you have the incentives as well. So maybe another team was willing to offer him Three million guaranteed with no incentives. And maybe he said, you know what, I believe in myself. I believe I'm going to earn a rotation job in spring training and I'm going to end up making six million dollars. So I'm going to take this deal instead because it has upside for me. And there's a chance they could have taken a, a lower guarantee in order to get more incentives from the Dodgers. Uh, but it's hard to believe that that would, that you would really take an incentive laden deal when the team tells you, hey, you're our sixth starter. And if Josh Beckett's healthy, you're going to end up in the bullpen. It's, it's hard to reach a lot of incentive targets pitching in middle relief. Right. Um, uh, to a couple other pitchers now. Um, we this uh, this off season, both uh, Oakland and Tampa Bay have given sort of market value contracts to relief pitchers. Yep. Uh, which uh, to some degree goes against uh, sabermetric orthodoxy. Is that fair uh-huh. to say? Or uh, uh, it goes against. Um, well, yeah. Well, you say what you say. Respond to it. So I would say they've given market value one-year contracts to uh, um, short-term commitments. So I don't think – I think when you use the term like market value reliever contract, maybe you're thinking of like – at least one would maybe think of like the Heath Bell contract or the Jonathan Papelbon contract or the Raphael Soriano contract. They haven't done any of those. They've given one-year commitments – Two pitchers that priced them as like one to one and a half win, win relievers. There's not a lot of one and a one, one to one and a half win relievers every year, but there's some chance to think like Jim Johnson and, and, uh, Grant Balfour could be those guys. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, but I, my, I would submit, submit that, um, at least I know I'm guilty of this and I don't know if it's guilt or not. Uh, usually if, if Oakland and Tampa Bay do something, um, for me, I say, oh, this must, this must be a smart decision. Right. Yeah. Uh, but now, uh, the Seattle Mariners have signed, uh, Fernando Rodney for basically the same cost. Yeah. Two, 214. That's, that's very similar to the Balfour deal, isn't it? Yeah. Balfour originally signed for 215 with the Orioles, flunked his physical, uh, and then signed for 212 with the, the Rays. Yeah. But I'll be, I'll be honest, given this, uh, uh this bias, I think, well, maybe this isn't a good idea now. <laughs> well, I think, uh, so I think my theory on this is that there's no question relief pri- pitcher prices have come way down. And so what we've seen with, um, kind of Johnson being given away at a $10 million arbitration salary and, uh, you know, about, uh, Rodney and Balfour signing for about $7 million a year, uh, is that teams are no longer willing to pay what they used to pay for proven closers or pay for saves anymore. And, you know, I think there's a decent chance that, all of these pitchers are worth about five or six or seven million dollars. Uh, you know, if you're an above average major league reliever, you know, and teams are flush with cash, I don't think there's this reason that we should say, well, relievers are just never worth any kind of multi-year commitment because they're so fluky. You know, Rodney has been a very good reliever. I mean, a couple of years ago, he was one of the best relievers in baseball, posted the lowest ERA in the history of the game. Um, you know, I think, you know, Balfour has a, a long track record of being a good closer. The, you know, these are valuable pieces. And so to say six or seven million dollars a year, 
is not a good idea, you'd have to think that they're really going to implode and have little or no value. And you think they will? They will have value. I mean, yeah. Rodney has been. He wasn't. He wasn't um, as good this past season as he was in 2012. But he was still. Uh, he was still, you know, at least 20 percent above average. Right. So Fernando Rodney is kind of the classic strike strikeouts and ground balls. Uh, you know, pitcher who you know has command problems and and you know tries to get around a bunch of walks because he doesn't give up uh, home runs. He doesn't. Uh, and he misses enough bats where he can strand runners. And you know, it's not the most. Uh, it's not the best skill set for your heart, necessarily, but it's a little, uh, uh, nerve-wrenching to have him walk, walk the bases loaded and trying to protect a one-run lead and then get out of it, but it works. And, 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 you know, more often than not, uh, he does get out of it because he gets ground balls that turn into double plays and he, and he gets strikeouts. And so, um, you know, I think from, from Rodney's perspective, he's not a bad pitcher. You know, he's not a great pitcher, but he's, you know, an above-average major league closer or maybe a, an average major league closer. Uh, and, you know, Balfour is, uh, you know, kind of the same thing. He gives more fly balls, so he gives up a few more home runs, but, uh, you know, posts a really low batting average because of all those fly balls and uh, hardly ever puts anyone on base, doesn't walk anyone. Like, you know, both of these guys are good, good relief pitchers. I think given the current economics of major league baseball, $7 million a year for a good relief pitcher isn't absurd. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, do you think that uh, – I mean, you mentioned that the – do you think the market has changed a little bit for relievers? You mentioned the Papelbon deal, which was what? That was a – was it a four-year four, deal? Four fifty, yeah. Four, which is what Garza just got. Yes. So there – yeah. Not, not, not so good. Not so, not so good, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bells was what, three years? 327, yeah. 327, yeah, that's not, that's not great. And um, what, you, what were the other big uh, relief – Pitcher contracts. I mean, are those well, two? Well, so Rafael Raphael Soriano got 228 last winter. Uh, so still 14 million a year. Um, but I think, you know, that was probably a little bit of an outlier over what we've seen over the last couple of years. Uh, Joe Nathan this winter got 220. That's the most anyone's going to get. Uh, 221. I think Brian Wilson got 110 with a player option, so it could become 220. Uh, but those, that's been the top end of the, the relief market deal this offseason. Uh, a few years ago we were seeing, you know, even 10 years ago, uh, you know, seeing, uh, three or four year deals for 12 to 13 million a year were totally the norm. I think Francisco Rodriguez got 336, uh, one year. Um, you know, there, there have been a bunch of deals that, you know, I think there was even a five-year deal back from the Blue Jays with BJ Ryan, uh, maybe a decade ago. I mean, there, there have been some, you know, long-term big money contracts for closers that we just haven't seen the last couple of years. Yeah. And, uh, as, uh, <laughs> as we learned from, I think this is the New York Times, 1984, uh, Bruce Suter. Bruce Suter, I believe, signed a seven-year contract. Uh, that's six uh, year, six year contract uh, in 1984. Yeah, not 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 great. That's longer. Yeah, it is longer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to this edition of Fan Graphs Audio where we do math. We do math. Yeah, we do basic yeah. math. Yeah, yeah, but he um yeah, he signed I think he signed yeah, for six, for 6 years. Um yeah, he signed uh, it paid him $750,000 for 6 years, which I I believe was quite a bit for the time. I I forget yeah. the exact terms. But then and the rest went into an insurance fund that was structured to pay him a million dollars a year for 30 years. It's uh, not not a bad payout. No, that's not bad. Right. No, that's good. Yeah, you yeah. continue to receive money as you uh, of course a million dollars right. now. He's he must still be um No, this is the last year. I assume this is the last this is the last year. Uh, of his, his, deal, gra- his gravy train is ending. Yeah, right. Or maybe it's six years from now. Maybe it was from the end of the contract. And he wasn't the same at all uh, after he signed with the Braves. Yeah. Right. I, I would imagine now he's, you know, very overpaid. 
Yeah, I think he's providing almost no wins. Yeah, at right. this point, yeah. yeah. But um, but that's a big contract. But people actually had no idea what they were doing in 1984 <laughs> with free agent uh, free agency. Yeah, I think if you look back at history, uh, some of the deals that some of the moves that happened. I mean, we talked about this with the uh, King Griffey Jr. trade a few weeks ago. You really see like the the understanding of value has changed dramatically, uh, and there were some real head scratchers. I mean, I think you know even in that. The post I wrote that was inspired by our conversation a couple weeks ago, uh, we didn't talk about this, but John Olerud, who the Mariners signed uh, as a free agent with the money that they couldn't give to King Griffey Jr. because he demanded a trade, they got him for $20, $20 million over three years. Uh, he was coming off a five-win season. The year before that, he was an eight-win player. Uh, he had like a long, like a 10-year track record of being at least a three-win player with peaks of five, six, and a couple of years at eight. Uh, you know, he probably projected at that point as a four, four-and-a-half-win player, and he got six million a year on a three-year deal. This is 10 years ago. So was that just because people would look at Olerud and say, well, yeah, he's a, he's a good fielding first baseman, makes a lot of contact, but doesn't hit home runs? Yes, right. Yeah, so okay. it was basically the stereotype of he doesn't hit for enough power to power position, so we're going to undervalue him, even though he was a fantastic player. He was kind of like the Joey Votto of his day, maybe a little less good, but, you know, that kind of player. Now we're seeing, you know, a high walk, high on base, moderate power first baseman get $250 million, and, you know, 10 years ago he got $20 million as a free agent. Yeah. Um, okay, let's uh, – well, we're winding down here, but uh, listen, I think you uh, you got a lot of content you were able to uh, extract a, a lot of words of content from the Freddie Freeman deal. I was, and I might not be done. Is There's that, a chance that I, I could continue to write about it for a little while. You, you did. You did. I mean, th- roughly three posts, right? Because you had uh, you had Freddie Freeman and choosing youth over track record. Freddie Freeman deal as market correction. The escalating trend of paying for prime years, which right. was essentially inspired by by Freddie Freeman's deal. Yeah. This is a big. Yeah. This is big for you. I, I mean, I think part of this is it's February. There's nothing else to write about. Uh, but I think, like, this is a pretty fascinating deal. I had, uh, you know, people in the game expressing a lot of surprise at the the size and, and length of the deal, given where Freeman was relative to free agency and his, his overall value. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people were pretty shocked at how large this contract was. And so, you know, when you have a deal that's kind of an outlier, uh, and kind of apart from what we've, what we've seen, and, you know, a lot of these contract extensions have followed kind of templates where a few years ago we saw Justin Upton, Jay Bruce, and Andrew McCutcheon signed almost the exact same six-year, $51 million contract. Uh, I think Bruce, like, got one left team option or something. Uh, but for the most part, they all just signed the same basic deal. Uh, when you see a deal that really breaks away from the pack and maybe resets the price for everyone else, that's uh, worth writing about, especially so, in February. And, and so you're, you're under the impression that that this Freeman deal, that, that going forward, uh, players that are of Freeman's quality but still pretty far from free agency, they might be looking at deals more similar to this one than those that you just uh, named, like the, the McCutcheon and Bruce deals. Absolutely. To me, this this really reminds me of the Joey Votto contract of two years ago, not because it's the same price, but because up until the Votto deal uh, two off-seasons ago, we hadn't really seen players not yet eligible for free agency signing prices signing contracts that you'd expect in free agency. Votto got, if you include the two years, he was already uh, uh, guaranteed 12 years, $250 million, uh, two years from free agency. That was the Reds' future guarantee to him at that point. We'd never seen anything like that for a um, 
you know, arbitration eligible player. And he wasn't even in the walk year of his deal. He was two years away from free agency. Uh, before that, guys at the four year service time level, the comps were, you know, Miguel Cabrera, who'd gotten 150 million over eight years. Uh, Ryan Howard, who got 125 over five. Uh, you know, it was all like low to mid hundreds. And then Votto blew them out of the water by a hundred million dollars. So the Votto deal, I think, uh, kind of heralded in this new era of players getting free agent prices uh, before they get to free agency and telling teams, hey, look, I won't test the open market if you give me open market money right now. And teams saying, hey, you know, this isn't a terrible idea. Let's go ahead and just lock in the player uh, at what is current free agent market prices. Sorry, can you hear my dog squeaking the toy really loudly? She really... Really wants to play at the yeah. moment. Yeah. She's very unhappy that the, the podcast is stealing her time of playing we'll, fetch. We'll be done momentarily. You can tell uh, her, please. There. I threw the toy across the room. Hopefully that will distract her for a little bit. Um, so I think the, the Vado deal ushered in this era of free agent prices for non-free agents. I think the Freeman deal is going to do something similar with uh, kind of escalating the the speed at which a player can expect to land a nine-figure deal. Like previously, this was the range of guys who are a year or two years away from free agency. Freeman was three years away from free agency, and what we'd seen from guys that far away or, or further were the deals like McCutcheon for 651, which, you know, a ridiculous steal for the Pirates. I think players are going to be less likely to sign deals like that if they know they can only play out one more year, get to arbitration, and get $100 million. So who are the uh, – I didn't ask you to prep for this question, but who are, who are the next players that would sort of – that are coming to a point where they might be – where they and their, and their respective organizations might be considering a, an extension like this? Yeah, so I think one of the fascinating things is, you know, the, the recent trend of extending all these guys has not carried over to the best young players currently in the game. So if you if you were to name, like – you know, say, who are the five best young players under age 23 or 24 that you'd want right now? You'd have Mike Trout, you'd have Bryce Harper, you'd have Giancarlo Stanton, uh, all three of them unsigned and not not under contract for long-term deals. Uh, I think, you know, on the pitcher side, you'd probably say Steven Strasburg and Jose Fernandez and, you know, before he blew out his elbow, Matt Harvey, uh, all of them not signed to long-term deals. Uh, I think what we're seeing is that, um, maybe there's been a little bit of pushback from agents and, and players who have a lot of talent and they're saying, hey, let's bet on ourselves. Let's get ourselves into our, at least our arbitration years and let's, uh, you know, let's cash in really large then. And so I think there's probably a, a wave of super premium contracts for non-free agents or, uh, you know, if these guys get to free agents, free agency record contracts we've never seen before. If Trout gets a free agency, $400 million is on the table. It, yeah, right. I mean, he's he's already a third of the way to the Hall of Fame. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, right, like, there's always, you know, we've been talking for two years, what would a Mike Trout contract extension look like? Uh, all the estimates of, of prior guesses are out the window. I mean, the Freeman deal for 8-135, it, you know, Freeman's less than half the player that Mike Trout is. Uh, I think you're realistically looking at, you know, you maybe value his four arbitration years at, you know, a total of, $40 million or $50 million or something in that range. Uh, and then you say, you know, if I want to buy out five more free agent years, I need to pay $35 million a year for those. So you're looking at $200 million uh, for like a nine-year contract right now, and that's probably even on the low side. So with regard to Trout, have you have you seen like his steamer and zips projections? Yeah, they're pretty good. Yeah, they're I mean, they're crazy. They're yeah. crazy. They're yeah. a steamer's nine wins, zips is nine and a half. Yeah. Um, now – 
if you look at his track record, it's not very shocking because he's been worth 10 seasons, um, you know, basically in each of the last two years. Yeah. So uh, nine wins is, uh, you know, a bit of negative regression, but it's still – it's just crazy. It doesn't even compute really what he yeah. does. No, right. I mean, I think the reality is we've never seen a player this good, this young. I mean, you know, there's – there just hasn't been one in baseball history, a guy at 21 who's been this good. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? You give him a lot of money. Yeah. He's lucky he came around uh, after, uh, you know, free agency was created. True. I think uh, if he had been born 30 years earlier, his uh, total paycheck would have been uh, orders of magnitude smaller. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's nuts. You know, because I was looking, I think Buster Posey has the next highest projection. And it's exactly three wins lower per zips. Right. And I think part of that is probably overestimating playing time at catcher, right? Because Posey's probably not going to get 650 plate appearances behind the plate. Right. Yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of that. Although he probably – doesn't he get some at first base? Like He does, right. But then he, he doesn't get the positional adjustment in those mm-hmm. games. He'd still be – he'd still be a good first baseman. Yeah, right. I mean, I think that, you know, Posey's kind of like Joe Maurer in that, you know, he gets a lot of value from playing catching, but he does, his value doesn't go away if he moves positions. Right. He he really is a lot. He's like a lot like Joe Maurer in other ways, too. The way he uh, sort of uh, comports himself, kind of uh, quiet and like he, he's the sort of guy like if you uh, if you were to have a daughter um, or a gay son, either one, uh, and they were to go out with either of them, you come home, you're like, hey, hello, young man. Look well be you look well behaved. I, I I gotta be honest. I don't know if I would want my daughter marrying a baseball player based on the the extracurricular activities of baseball players. Well, they have a lot of opportunity. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're wealthy. They're wealthy. Even if they're not necessarily attractive in their faces, they're usually like tall and muscular and wealthy. And att- attractive in their pocketbooks. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'd marry either of them. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I would you divorce. Would. I would divorce my wife on this podcast. And marry either of them if they'd have me. Yeah, that would be probably very good for Fangrass traffic. Yeah, it would, yeah, it would be good. It'd be sensational. Yeah, maybe uh, the publicity from uh, Buster Posey or Joe Maurer marrying a Fangrass writer would be off the charts. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, he's literally yeah, especially if it's not Wendy Thurm. Like that would make it extra sensational. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, Wendy Thurm might be uh, – she might be a little jealous if there was a Buster Posey situation. Uh, That's right. If Buster Posey's marrying a fangrass writer and it's not Wendy Thurm, I she, think we'd have a throwdown. Yeah, there'd be a throwdown. Yeah. And uh, honestly, I would not want to have a throwdown with Wendy Thurm. <laughs> no, absolutely. She, she would she, sue you. She, yeah, well, she, she'd probably somehow find a way both to both to hurt me physically and then sue me. Yeah, take all your money. Yeah, and take all my yeah. money, yeah. Right. yeah. Which would be okay because then you'd have Joe Maurer or Buster Posey's money. Yeah, although that would be a lot – it would be a lar- much larger suit. True. Yeah. Lots to think about there. <laughs> a lot of information. Well, let's uh, let's stop it though, uh, Cameron. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for participating once again. No problem. All right. That is Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.